Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. We are uh, in Parshat Naso this morning, and according to our triennial reading, we have an interesting hunk of Torah. Uh, we're going to look at the middle part of that triennial portion, and so we're going to look at chapter 6. So would someone like to begin reading at 6, chapter 6, verse 1? The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, if anyone, man or woman, explicitly utters a Nazarite's vow to set himself apart for the Lord, he shall abstain from wine and any other intoxicant. He shall not drink vinegar of wine or any other intoxicant, neither shall he drink anything in which grapes have been steeped, nor eat grapes fresh or dry. Throughout his term as Nazarite, he may not eat anything that is obtained from the grapevine, even seeds or skin. Throughout the term of his vow as Nazarite, no razor shall touch his head. It shall remain consecrated until the completion of his term as Nazarite of the Lord, the hair of his head being left to grow untrimmed. Throughout the term that he has set apart for the Lord, he shall not go in where there is a dead person. Even if his father or mother or his brother or sister should die, he must not defile himself for them since, uh, since hair set apart for his God is upon his head. Throughout his term as Nazarite, he is consecrated to the Lord. Go on. If a person dies suddenly near him, defiling his consecrated hair, he shall shave his head on the day he becomes pure. He shall shave it on the seventh day. On the eighth day, he shall bring two turtle doves or two pigeons to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting. The priest shall offer one as a purification offering and the other as a burnt offering and make expiation on his behalf for the guilt that he incurred through the corpse. That same day he shall reconsecrate his head and rededicate to the Lord his term as Nazarite, and he shall bring a lamb in its first year as a penalty offering. The previous period shall be void since his consecrated hair was defiled. All right. <laughs> All right. What does that mean? What does that mean? All right, so let's look at let's look at the word we're dealing with. The term we're dealing with is nazir, from nun zayin resh. The shoresh means set aside, meaning set aside for, and is probably an abbreviation of nazir le Elohim, right? Set apart, set aside for God. So there are two types of nazir. <clears throat> there is the temporary nazir, so somebody who decides, and it has to be voluntary. A person decides that they're going to take the vows of the Nazarite for a period of time. And then there is the lifelong Nazarite who doesn't have a choice about it. The lifelong Nazarite is, usually is dedicated by the mother. We know, we know this. We know this. Who do we know? Samson. Samson. The most famous Nazarite. Lifelong Nazarite is Samson. Why, why does his mother consecrate him as a Nazir? I don't know why. 
So we don't know why women did that. We can guess the thing women are most concerned about in ancient Israel is what? Childbirth, having children, having in particular sons. So what might dedicating, if one should conceive and one says, I will dedicate it to the Lord, what might that do? Well, it might be, if, if it's safe, if I have this child, then it's like making a deal. I'll if make I you give, a deal. If I give birth, then I will dedicate this child. Okay, so. But it also gives your, your son, because he's not going away with any other woman right. or anything like that. So, so sex is not prohibited to a Nazarite. Cutting the hair and drinking. <laughs> <laughs> Cutting the hair and drinking. And one more. <clears throat> Cutting the hair is forbidden. Right? Do we remember the story of Samson? Mm-hmm. Now does it make a little more sense? <clears throat> Why his hair was so important? It is consecrated hair. And you cannot desacralize the hair. It cannot be desacralized, which means once it's cut, once the Nazarite period is over if it's a temporary Nazarite once it's cut the hair must be burned because it can't be desacralized so so now we understand a little bit more why when Samson's hair right becomes right and shorn not and he's a lifelong Nazarite we understand how horrifying that would have been his sanctified hair is shorn it was never to be cut is there a relation of that word to Nazareth? Yes, I was wondering. As in a place... I don't know. As in I'm Jesus trying to, of? trying to think what Nazareth is in Hebrew. Oh, that's not the Hebrew? I, so I'm not I sure what it would be. Nazareth? Nazareth? Nazareth, so I don't know. Good question. Well, somebody's going to look it up when they get home. Yes? And bring bring us back the answer for next week. Um, so no no intoxicant and and no product of the grape at all. No jelly on the toast in the morning, right? No no grape product whatsoever, and no intoxicant. Um, and somewhere it says no old old wine, which some in uh, Akkadian and Ugaritic might mean beer. No vinegar. Um, so no grape product of any kind, which includes intoxicants, uh, and no cutting of the hair, and no corpse contamination. Right? So we have talked about corpse contamination. We've talked about that that is the highest form of ritual otherness that one can contract. Right, that is the defilement through contact with a corpse. So Carol brings up the very important point that these restrictions sound very much like whom? Okay. All right. So priests have a certain amount of restrictions as regards intoxicants. What are the priests forbidden? How are they forbidden intoxicants? They can't drink while they're in service to the temple. So, while in service, what about at home when they're done with their shift? Yeah, they, do they can drink. So that's so the nazir has a more stringent intoxicant t- 
ta- um, ban. ban, thank you, than the priest. For the priest, what happens if the priest becomes ritually defiled by a corpse? Seven days, and then the rituals of purification. Don't worry about it. (laughs) A whole lot of washing. A whole lot of washing. And a sacrifice, right? So, um, So for the priest, seven days, and then there's ritual purification. What about for the nazir? The temporary nazir, what happens? He cannot be around. What happens if by accident, oops, you're walking along and boom, you stumble over a corpse? Restarts. It cancels the Nazarite period, which restarts immediately after corpse contamination is dealt with. It's a reboot. It's a a reboot. So I I decide that I'm going to be a Nazarite, and women are included, by the way. Um, there is some indication that in the second temple period it was extremely popular and it's one of the reasons the rabbis come down on it and and get rid of it. Isn't the, when the uh, word red, wasn't it all uh, masculine? So we also get the, um, we get nazira. We get the feminine term uh, as well. At the beginning it says if any one man or a woman. It says at the beginning. But this is English. So, so if anyone, man, man or, or woman, woman, utters a Nazarite vow. So it is clear even in Torah that women are included in this. So, what was I saying? Reboot. So it cancels, so corpse defilement cancels, oh, you were, you were saying you didn't understand. So I decide I'm going to be a Nazarite for a year. So I'm going to refrain from all intoxicants. I'm not going to cut my hair, right? And I'm not going to be defiled by a corpse for a year. If I'm walking along and stumble across a dead body, three months into my Nazarite vow, it cancels it, and I have to start over. The year starts over. And you cut your hair again? Whatever Unless your mother dedicates you as a baby for life, it was not for life. It was a temporary period. So my ah, ah, ha, ha, ha. very good question. So if a woman takes vows as a Nazarite, what's going to happen when she menstruates? She's going to be tame. She's going to be ritually other, right? So it does not cancel the Nazarite period. And he, the male and female, I forget if females are impure after intercourse. Males, Nazarites can have intercourse, which is also defiling, right? It's, it's also put you in a ritual state of impurity. So the only one that, that cancels and is off limits is corpse contamination, right? The big one. The really, really big one. Alright. So what's interesting about it, the reason I bring it up, um, is because for priests, they just go through a seven-day ritual of purification. For the Nazarite, it completely cancels what's happened for them, and they have to restart. In other words, it's more severe, even than a priest. Right. 
So that's interesting, isn't it? It's interesting that the rules from the Nazarite are more severe and restrictive than for the priests. Well, the priests didn't ask to be priests. They were born priests, and the Nazarite decides him or herself. So why might the laws have been made more strident and stringent for the Nazarite who's choosing this rather than the priests who don't? To what? To prove their commitment. So it's got to be more intense an experience and you have to really want to do it. You have to really be committed. And if you make it really, you've really got to be committed to this, what might that do? It would discourage people it from doing it. would discourage people from doing it. So it seems natural that there is a desire that gets met by taking on this kind of um, abstention, right? This kind of aesthetic practice of withdrawing from naturally um, permitted, because it's natural to want certain things like alleviation from dealing with life by and getting intoxicated. Um, it, it's and and the tar, and Torah is fine with with strong drink and and beer and wine. It's it's fine with that. Except the priest when they're serving, right? So, um, for life, of course. The priests, of course. We're not talking. We're not talking about that. We're talking about the Nazarite who takes the vow of abstaining voluntarily. What's the difference between their duties, the Nazarite and the priest? Ha! A very important, another important part of this. So it seems that there is some desire that is fulfilled by refraining and taking on kind of a stringent practice for sacred purposes, right? Because there's a lot of people doing it, apparently. Like, it got really popular. So there seems to be, some of us would not have exactly that strong an inclination towards this, but there seems to be a need that is fulfilled by that. And it seems that Torah gives people a way to meet that need. However, you start to bump up against an issue with the priests whose responsibility it is to serve. So they're refraining from all of this business of intoxicants while in, on, on duty and um, needing to be pure all of that is about their service. What is the Nazarite's duty? Just to be a Nazarite. None. That's interesting. <laughs> they don't do that. So you want this label. To, you're saying that you want to serve God. And you're giving up all this, but you have no... So you just live your life of Riley and don't cost off cutting your hair and getting drunk? Correct. Sort of like being a nun. So, so, so we get it that there's a connection between refraining from what's normal, right, and and dedicating oneself to God by doing that refraining. We we get that. That's why nuns and priests are supposed to not do things that are normal, right? They are refraining in order to make themselves 
set aside, set apart, different, reserved for God. So we, we kind of get that. But what, but they serve. Nuns and priests serve. Right? The Nazarite doesn't. Why not? Why doesn't the Nazarite serve? If you're all set aside for God. Well, the Nazarite can't be a priest. Because, I mean, because that's hereditary. So what would there be for them to do? <laughs> so, if the Nazarite were to serve, it would be competition with the priests. And the Levites, we can't have that, can we? Because they are temporary, whereas the priests Lifelong. Lifelong. Correct. So there are some scholars who believe that this whole Nazarite business was invented by priests. What would that argument go like? They don't work. The Nazarite doesn't work. The people had a desire to be holy, but this was a way to say, okay, you can be holy, but you cannot be a priest. <laughs> So they're just, followers. They're followers. They're congregation. They're... And who supports this them? Sa- it sounds, this sounds to me somewhat like what some teenagers do. Talk to me about that. <laughs> sounds to me like teenagers do the opposite. I'm, but I'm special. I'm unique. I'm a vegetarian. You can't touch me. You can't tell me what to do. And I'm, I exist. Therefore, I'm special. <laughs> so, so some kind of desire to be special, to be different, to be unique, to demonstrate control over one's place in the world. I'm a vegetarian. You can't make me eat that, right? Stuff like that. Stuff like that. So, so it seems that the priests, the scholars who believe this might be a priestly invention seem to theorize that the priests knew they had to give people a way to do that. And if you give them a healthy way to do that, but don't give them service, you're letting them be special like you temporarily, in most cases, special like you as the priests, without in any way endangering the institute of the priest, the institution of the priesthood. You're mollifying the people. I was just thinking, do you think that the people perhaps were rebelling at the idea, what do you think you're so special, you know? Uh, maybe that was an answer to this idea that you're an elite class and look at us, we're just regulars. So this, and this remains, I think, a theme for us as a people, right? Because when people want to defend chosenness, what do they, how do you defend saying we're the chosen people? How do you make that not sound egotistical and crazy? We choose ourselves. That's Reconstructionist. <laughs> How do people defend we're the chosen people? How do they make that sound not so bad? It's a responsibility and it's difficult and you might not want it. Yeah. There you go. The classic answer is chosen for special responsibilities. We, it's harder for us because we have... 613 things to contend with, whereas y'all, regular folk, you Christians and pagans, y'all don't have those. So for us, it's harder. It's a responsibility to be chosen. Okay, so that's 
That's the defense. And it's truly a defense, right? That we're not saying we're better. We're, or are we? Right? So, so this, this is what, cause I'm chosen by mom, you know, to look after things while she's away. It's a lot of responsibility and it's added pressure and it's so stress, right? But, so I'm not, I'm not better than you, little sibling. I, right? And I'm older and so I have more responsibilities. Okay. So, I don't think you can have the one if we're dealing with human beings and not the other, right? Some sense of, yes, you have added responsibilities and that makes you special. It just, it just is there. I'm not saying it's good or bad. I, I think it's just natural. It's there. And so the priests were most likely dealing with the same thing that they're saying, wait a minute, we take on, we Levites, and priests take on the danger of encroachment. Like we've studied this stuff together enough to know what happens if if encroachment occurs, it's the Levites and the priests that get zapped. So, you know, if something goes wrong with the sancta, they get zapped. They're dead. So they're taking on the responsibilities for the Israelites of keeping the sancta like they're supposed to be, keeping ritual purity like it's supposed to be, so the presence of God will dwell among the people. That's a huge responsibility. And even so, I think there is then a natural tendency to say they're special and I want to be special too. And that threatens the institution of the priesthood, right? So, um, and so maybe th- those scholars are right that the, the priests were not stupid, right? Ha ha Lisa, very interesting. She said that the priests wanted to keep those folks close. And how does the Nazarite, we, we haven't gotten that far. We should read that. Um, we'll, we'll see how it, how it ends. How does the period end? Um, Ah, Lisa, you want to read verse nine? Oh no, wait. Where did we end? I don't know where we end. We ended at thirteen. Yes. All right. So what we just read, verse eleven. What does it say? Verse eleven, Lisa. Verse eleven. The Asaha Kohen. They shall offer one as a purgation offering and the other as a burnt offering and make expiation on the person's behalf for the guilt incurred through the corpse. All right, so if corpse contamination happens to a Nazir, they have to go to whom? The priest. So the priests are the ones who deal with the contamination and it turns out that um, that's also how the Nazarite ends the period, which which we haven't gotten to, ends their period of Nazarithood is um, <laughs> Nazariteness um, is through sacrifice. So what does that do? It keeps them close, and it keeps the priests in power. Because even if you're going to be a Nazarite and you're kind of special. Not as special as we are, but you're kind of special. Um, when that period comes to an end, it is we who 
turn you back into regular. You need, you still need me because I have a responsibility that you don't have, which makes me more special. Mm -hmm. Yes. So once a person decides that they want to enter this temporary period and I start growing my hair and I'm not going to drink, do I still go to the office? Yes. (laughs) Yes. So you continue. I mean, actually, we don't know exactly, but figure the lifelong Nazarite is doing whatever the Nazarite does. Um, and, and so presumably, yes. This seems so un-Jewish. By the way we, <laughs> but no, by the way we practice Judaism today, we, we think of personal denial in terms of other religions. How did it get kind of undone? Yeah, so let's go to 13, because I wanna, I wanna go where you're going. Read at 13, Bert. Oh, this is the ritual for the Nazarite. On the day that his term as Nazarite is completed, he shall be brought to the entrance of the tent of meeting. As his offering to the Lord, he shall present one male lamb in its first year without blemish for a burnt offering, one ewe lamb in its first year without blemish for a purification offering, one ram without blemish for an offering of well-being, a basket of unleavened cakes of choice flour and oil mixed with oil mixed in, and unleavened wafers spread with oil and the proper grain offerings and libations. It's a lot of animals. It's a lot of animals. Well, and libations. And libations. And libations. Mm-hmm. The priest uh, shall present them before the Lord and offer the purification offering and the burnt offering. He shall offer the ram as a sacrifice of well-being to the Lord together with the basket of unleavened cakes. The priest shall also offer the grain offerings and the libations. The Nazarite shall then have his consecrated then shave his consecrated hair at the entrance of the tent of meeting and take the locks of his consecrated hair and put them on the fire that is under the sacrifice of well-being. The priest shall take the shoulder of the ram when it has been boiled, one unleavened cake from the basket and one unleavened wafer, and place them on the hands of the Nazarite after he has shaved his consecrated hair. The priest shall elevate them as an elevation offering before the Lord, and this shall be a sacred donation for the priest in addition to the breast of the elevation offering and the thigh of gift offering. After that, the Nazarite <laughs> might drink wine. May drink wine. May drink wine. Go on. May drink wine. Finish it. Such is the obligation of a Nazarite, except that he who vows an offering to the Lord of which he can afford beyond his Nazarite requirements must do exactly according to the vow that he has made beyond his obligation as a Nazarite. All right. It almost seems like witchcraft. Which part seems like witchcraft? Um, <laughs> the sacrifice part. The sacrificing the, with the, and the hair and the this and the, it just, it, yeah. So what is witchcraft? <laughs> witchcraft. Conjuring, hocus pocus, I don't know. But that, that would apply to the whole sacrifice. So Sarah just defined witchcraft as? Mysterious routine. Mysterious routine. If I say mysterious routine, and forget what we said before that, okay? Just we're starting at mysterious routine. Couldn't that be ritual? Yes. So what's the difference between ritual and witchcraft? Ah. Lisa says there isn't. Don't like. So witchcraft <laughs> is ritual that we don't believe in, right? But why do we make kiddush? Ooh, three times over the flame to cover our eye. 
come on, right? To somebody else, they're like, what the heck are those Jews doing, right? Matzah, maror. I mean, if you think about it, we have some pretty weird stuff going on. Havdalah? What, what is that business? A torch and a smelling thing and, and right, and then doing this with our fingers and singing all this mumbo jumbo in this ancient language that nobody understands. It's the same thing. But we have a connection to it, so we do it, and it isn't, you know, and I don't mean just witchcraft, I don't mean to pick on that word, you know, pick whatever, what, hocus pocus, you know, pick, which by the way, you know, hocus pocus was an incantation. We have many, 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 many artifacts from the early rabbinic period with Aramaic incantations on them. Magic bowls, I did my rabbinic year thesis on on these, um, amulets and magic bowls on magic bowls and amulets so that they would write on the outside of the magic bowl the incantation in Aramaic, hakus pokus, that kind of thing, adabra kidabra. Adabra kidabra. Abracadabra is an Aramaic incantation Right? So you, you, you do this, you read this, the, the rabbi officiating, um, reads the thing, the, the, ma- the magic incantation, flips over the bowl, and traps all the demons that are in your house under the bowl, so that your house is safe. We have found many, many magic bowls in Israelite homes. And amulets, one of which probably, um, is the mezuzah. Um, and so, so we have lots of these. It is completely part of the Israelite experience and is no different than anybody else's incantations. You know, it's about whether or not you buy into that system. So when I say, because it's ours, it's okay and it's not seen as hocus pocus, how many Jews do you know who immediately roll their eyes and say, oh, that is just ridiculous? They're embarrassed by our rituals. Because for them, it's the same as hocus pocus. My father was seriously embarrassed about so many of the things that we do as Jews. Like, ugh, that's so stupid. Like, who would believe that? You know, like, that's so silly, right? And real, you know, a real distaste for all that superstition and all that craziness, you know. Um, and, and if I said something about you know, feeling good and feeling healthy and feeling strong, what is the first thing he would say? Poo-poo Kinahara. Yeah. <laughs> the same, a lot of those people who poo-poo those rituals, when they sit down to watch a football game, will put on their lucky hat, or they will put on their lucky shirt. Right. And if I may quote a non-Jewish source. Please. Great, we are Reconstructionists. Great, great Wikipedia. Oh, yeah. The definition of witchcraft... Witchcraft broadly means the practice of and belief in magical skills and abilities that are able to be exercised individually by designated social groups or by persons with the necessary esoteric secret knowledge. Right. Witchcraft, right? It's not everybody; it's them. Right. And 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 we have a, a lot of discussion in Torah about the sorcerer. And the magician, you shall not suffer a witch to live. You're to kill people for practicing witchcraft. Wrong stuff. Wrong stuff. What's the definition of... And the rabbis have a very interesting discussion in the Talmud. We learned it in rabbinical school. 
had a very interesting discussion. Maybe I'll ask Rabbi Renner to teach that in his Talmud class. Um, a very interesting discussion about what is magic versus what is miracles affected by um, an observant Jew. What is the difference between miracles and magic, right? And so it's a very interesting discussion. And if you really, really, really pick it apart, there is no difference. I mean, right? There is no, there's no difference. But they have to come up with how can you have miracle stories about rabbis in the Talmud, which we do, by the way. You know, the water flows this way. If the halacha is according to my opinion, let the water go the other way in the river, and that happens. Let a carob tree fly by the window. That happens. Right? So the halacha is according to my opinion. So it's a very famous story, Tanur Shal Achnai, the, the oven of Achnai. So um, if the oven is pure, let the water flow the other way. That happens. How is that not magic? Right? But if it's affected by a rabbi... It can't be magic. It's the parting of the Red Sea. The parting of the Red Sea. It, I mean, it, but of course, it's clear there that that that's God. Okay. So that's okay. Part. Oh, God, God's alive. Rabbi did teach the oven. The what? He, did he taught teach the oven. oven. He taught the oven story. Absolutely. Wonderful. That's one of my favorite stories because of the way it ends, right? <laughs> right? Because of the way it ends, right? Right? It's not in heaven. The halacha is not in heaven. So, meaning. Even if God comes down and makes a river flow the other way for you, the the chutzpah answer that the rabbis give is lo bashamayim. A bat kol comes from heaven finally to say the oven is pure. The 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 water didn't convince them. The flying carob tree didn't convince them. So finally, a bat kol, meaning a heavenly voice, says the halacha is according to Rabbi whoever, and and so then the rest of the rabbis who were ruling against that decision say lo he we are told in torah it's not in heaven <laughs> right the book of deuteronomy moses in his famous speech right it's not in heaven that you can't go get it it's close to you it's right in your mouth right and so the rabbis turn those words on torah against the bat kol and say lo he it's very reconstructionist, it's very reconstructionist. The halacha goes according to the majority opinion. It doesn't matter what a heavenly voice says. It goes according to the majority. It's our decision, right? How to, how to live into these words of Torah, not yours. That, I love that story. That's a great story. So um, I might tell it at Yom Kippur, actually. Um, but I digress. So we, where were we? Oh, so witchcraft. Okay. So, so speaking of that, um, the hair, right? When we're told that the Nazarite... Is it hot in here? Yeah. I'm relieved that it's hot in here. Can I just say? Um, so when it says that he shall not be defiled, like he shouldn't be defiled, right? The, the previous period, if he is defiled, shall be void. Why? Since his consecrated hair was defiled. So it's not actually the issue that the person of the Nazarite is contaminated by corpse contamination. It's the sacralized hair that came, that, that is the problem. That's the issue. And so you gotta start over. Cause that hair cannot be desacralized. It must be burned, right, on the altar. Interesting. I think the, priest offers all of the sacrifices except the hair. 
So, who, who offers the hair? The, head, the, Nazarite. the Nazarite. Yes? Um, so, we have inscriptions from the ancient world that from this period and around this period. Um, we have inscriptions from a Cypriot pot that says, this pot contains the hair of the donor as a memorial to Astarte. So, so it seems that this idea was very present in the ancient world about the hair substituting for the person. It is the person, right? So um, it's a permanent reminder to the goddess of the donor's devotion by putting his hair in it. Back to witchcraft, right? What is what is a key ingredient for voodoo and other kinds of magic? You need the person's hair or fingernails. You you need you need something that stands in for them. Yes? One and so if you cut uh, if a woman's a Nazarite, right? And she presumably women have longer hair anyway, right? It would have been easier to deal with to to keep it back if you don't cut it. Like, women wouldn't have cut their hair short in the ancient world. So, presumably, their hair starts long. Now you're a Nazarite, you don't even trim your hair as a woman. Likely, it gets longer, right? How did women deal with their hair? What did they do with it often to keep it out of the way? They braid it. They braid it. Yes? So, if I'm going to cut off my hair as a woman, likely, we're talking about a braid. Yes? We do have indication of um, in the Teutonic. What's the, you know? What's the uh, oh? Was that not our dry erase marker? I'm going to be in so much trouble. Don't tell Elvina that it was me. Um, so if we do have um, evidence to worship the. The pagan Teutonic goddess, and I know this is not K-I transliteration. I don't care. I hate the H with the dot. Don't tell anybody. All right. So um, to honor the goddess Perchta, Germanic, you know, Teutonic gods, Perchta, women would offer a braid. So we see that here. We see offering hair as a sacrifice of something of me, right, that that draws me closer to the divinity. Yes? I swear I'm going somewhere with this. Um, so perta. This is how women would, would honor the goddess perta. Talk to me, Sarah. I don't know if you speak Yiddish as well. What is the challah loaf on Shabbat called in Yiddish? So have you ever heard this word? Berta. Talk to me about where the tradition of challah as we know it comes from. Germany, right? You know, it comes from Eastern Europe, and it's a braided... Loaf. You will never convince me there is not some kind of connection between women 
honoring Perchta with a braid of their hair and the Berchta being a braided loaf of challah. And for me, I love it because it's a connection, right, to women's particular relationship to a feminine aspect of the divine that we have kind of wrapped into, that is reconstructed, right, um, as a Shabbat ritual. told me that she was in um, she was in a ghetto in Eastern Europe and knew that there was going to be a uh, an emptying of the ghetto at a certain time and she she had a braid in her hair and she and her sister cut off their braids and hid them and after the war, they came back to where they had been, and they found their braids. And, wow. and she had, she kept her braid. One sister moved to Israel and lived in Haifa. The other sister lived in Beverly Hills, and was the one I knew. She had the braid, and every once in a while, she would. So just think about that story. To cut off your braid to survive. But there's such an attachment, right? There's still such an attachment that, right? And you think about people who keep baby hair, right? People who would, who used to put their, the hair of their beloved in a locket, right? People used to be separated by lots of different kinds of things. They would keep hair in a locket. We we know that, that youths in temples would have their, their lock nailed to the wall with their name. Right? So it it was it it it's a very powerful thing that there a custom of cutting off a piece of the braided challah? So, so that would have been to, to give challah. You know you threw a piece in the oven before it was to be burned up before it was baked. But if you look in the traditional Jewish world, right you don't cut a child's hair until the age of three. There's still this this power around, right, the hair and growth and shearing and not shearing and cutting and not cutting. And at its time, one of the most revolutionary counterculture musicals hair. was called Hair. Right? I know Hair. was my point, Diane. <laughs> There's a connection between Perta and Berta. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I think it's really powerful. I think it you'll never convince me that 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 there's not a connection. You you can't all this talk about hair and they offered their hair to Perta and that braided loaf is Berta. You just you will just never convince me. What did you want to say? I was thinking 
for their vows. Orthodox women. So nuns, Orthodox women, cut the, shave or cut their hair and wear their heads covered and or wear wigs. And the wigs have to come from women, not Indian women who believe in another god. They have to come from women who don't believe in another god. So the hair that you put on has to be special too. Yeah, who checks that? So, oh, trust me. I'm sure, I'm sure there are authorities who check it. Trust me. And Muslim women cover their hair. Right. So hair is a big deal for women, has always been a big deal for women, right? And Orthodox women cover it because only their husbands can see their hair. And for them, that is a testament to to their beauty, right? We see it as women who cover their hair, whether it's in, you know, other cultures. In biblical Israel, it would have been the same. You covered your hair, Um or today, right, as a, you know, in our tradition, Orthodox practice, the idea is women's hair is so beautiful, special, powerful. And then there's something about you that is communicated when you, you appear with your hair that is very intimate, right? And you think about, like, you think about, um, touching people's hair, right? It's a, it's an act of, of real intimacy, like when I'm with these little ones in there, you know, and I can't, I can't help it. Like, I gotta touch them. I gotta touch their hair. It's like, oh, right. It's there's a real, and then with grown-ups, right? That's a real act of intimacy to put your hands in someone's hair. I've spoken to Muslim women, asked them about why why they wear a hijab, scarf, and aside from custom, or this is what a Muslim woman does. For some people, they say it's for modesty. Because if men saw women's hair, they go completely bonkers. Well, and it's less about men going bonkers than it is about women being objectified for, for those women, right? That it's about, yes, men would be sexually aroused by a woman's hair. That doesn't seem to be the real problem. I mean, it, it can be identified as the problem, right? Um, that... That you don't want men getting aroused all over the place. So what do you do? Control the women. Put them behind a mechitza. If the men can't concentrate on their prayers, well, put the women upstairs in the balcony so that the men can concentrate, please. Like they're, they're doing the real business. Get, get them out of here where we're not distracted. So it can be for Orthodox women, their experience and, and women who cover their hair in, in other religions or cultures, they understand it as if the problem isn't men being aroused. The problem is me being an object of sexual focus, right? I am protected from being objectified by covering myself, right? Which is really counterintuitive to a lot of us first world Western women, right? We, we see that as an infringement of our freedom. But I have to say, and I've said this before, when I was studying at Yeshiva High School and we didn't have to deal with the boys and they weren't allowed to touch us. Nagia, you're not allowed to touch. So there was, when I got to public high school, I was horrified by how boys felt they could put their hands on girls and literally manhandle them, pulling them onto their laps, you know, like just playing and just being friendly, but but with with no permission 
And I was, it was very uncomfortable and it took me a long time to get used to. And there is a real sense of I am protected from having to deal with all of that, right, in a system that enforces modesty and some separation, right? Um, anyway, okay, why, why do we go down that road? Um, so, Robert, would you go to the copy machine and grab um, the copies of Jonathan Sachs that I was late getting here? Because I, I was making? I have a question. Yes, Going Paula. To, to the uh, Torah. Mm -hmm. it's Going back to the Torah. <laughs> like, <laughs> Because of all the sacrifice that had to be done at the end of the year, that a person needed to have wealth. Very, very interesting point that you bring up. People had to be able to afford these sacrifices to end the period of being a Nazarite. And it had to be yours. It had to be the person who was doing it. Until... It didn't. And we have records uh, of people paying for other Nazarites' ending ritual. And this is one of the reasons um, we think the rabbis started to put the kibosh on it. Right? Is it too, if, if I don't have to afford it, if someone else is going to pay for it, it becomes a little bit more accessible and possibly then, thank you, a little more popular, right? And um, so it becomes that somebody else can pay your Nazarite sacrifice stuff. And where was I going? It's two lambs and a ram, by the way. Right. So, so the practice ended because you can afford. Oh, because also because it started being used in bets. If so, if the Vikings win, I'll be a Nazarite for two months. So it started being used in this way that was like crass and yes. A homecoming. And the power of that moment that I'm sure on stage was. Right? Because um, you understand, I'm sure, the way they dramatize it, um, you understand the intimacy that she's initiating. Correct. And when she chooses not to, those people are here. Right. Remains 
wandering object until she chooses to utilize the head. And there's traces of that in our Nazarite story of Samson and we all know that story. Why? There's something really compelling about Delilah, right? Who's a floozy, right? And seduces him and manages to seduce him into her lap and she cuts off his hair. I wonder if it really makes me wonder because, I mean, and, and again, it's not that he necessarily was using that story. It's that there's a universal human, we call this, right, terrestrial human culture. There's a human understanding of of the of the intimacy of that and the power of hair, as we've been saying over and over and over. All right, so let's look at Rabbi Jonathan Sachs to conclude, going to this idea of the rabbis kind of putting the kibosh right on some of this. <coughs> so go to your second page. And to Bert's point, look at the top paragraph of the second page. The ambivalence of Jews toward the life of self-denial may therefore lie in the suspicion that it entered Judaism from the outside. Right? Bert said, it's just not Jewish. To refrain from stuff is not Jewish. There, are movements in the fir- there were movements in the first centuries of the Common Era in both the West and the East that saw the physical world as a place of corruption and strife. They were, in fact, dualisms. They held that the true God was not the creator of the universe and could not be reached within the universe. The physical world was the work of a lesser and evil deity. The two best-known movements to hold this view were Gnosticism in the West and Manichaeism in the East. So at least some of the negative evaluation of the Nazarite may have been driven by a desire to discourage Jews from imitating non-Jewish tendencies in Christianity and Islam. Right? So he's, he's saying it might be that there were those movements, there have always been those movements, and, and part of the rabbi's kind of hesitance to have Jews do this was because it, it's not Jewish. Right? Because it's going on in the non-Jewish world. All right, so he'll give us that. He'll say maybe that's true, but he's going to go further and say, you know what? It's even deeper than that. So he goes to Rambam. He goes to Maimonides, right? Who has both positive and negative representations, Rambam does, Maimonides does, of the Nazarite. Okay? So go to the last sentence of your middle paragraph after the the, the last two sentences of that middle paragraph after Hilchot Nizirut in parentheses. How does any writer in a single book adopt such contradictory positions, let alone one as resolutely logical as Maimonides? The answer is profound. So profound that it is hard to assimilate and digest, yet it remains one of the most insightful ideas ever formulated in ethics. According to Maimonides, there is not one model of the virtuous life, but two. He calls them respectively the way of the the way of the chassid, right, and the way of the what the chacham. What is the chassid? The saint. And what is the chacham? The sage. 
The saint is a person of extremes. Maimonides defines chesed, from which we get chasid. Yes, that, that chasid is based on the word chesed. Loving kindness, right? Good behavior, to be sure. But conduct in excess of what strict justice requires. Right? Justice is one thing. Chesed is above and beyond what's fair. It's about doing more even than what's right. Right? It's about doing more because out of loving kindness. If one avoids haughtiness to the utmost extent and becomes exceedingly humble, he is termed a chassid. All right. The sage is a different kind of person altogether. He follows the golden mean, the middle way, the way of moderation and balance. He or she avoids the extremes of cowardice on the one hand and recklessness on the other and thus acquires the virtue of courage. Right? So rather than the extreme of being a coward or being completely stupid about taking risks, if if you moderate between those, what do you have? Courage. And presumably wisdom. Okay, so so let's 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 read this and go there. He or she avoids miserliness on the one hand, giving away all one has on the other, and thus becomes generous. Right? You don't. You're not greed. You know, you're not cheap, and you're not going to give everything away like an idiot either. You know, the way between those is generosity, the way of balance, the way of moderation. The sage knows the twin dangers of too much and too little. Excess and deficiency. He or she weighs the conflicting pressures and avoids the extremes. How are you saying that that's different from how we understand a sage? Well, at KI, we understand the sage only has to do with age. (laughs) I think it's wisdom. I think that 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 that's not so i think that we understand the word sage to mean wise and so we've chosen to call our older citizens of ki sages Whether because it has good implications correct 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 you call i could call every kid in there an angel <laughs> for a reason doesn't mean cuz it's not cuz i know they are what am I saying when I call every one of them an angel? You could be. You could be. Your highest self. You know, it's, and, oh. right, so I'm going to assume that you are, right? And that is a compliment. That is an, and, and I think a way that we are combating an ageist view, whether it's wise or not, to do, I think that's how it came about. And a lot of our seniors hate it. They hate being called sages. They, they think it's stupid. Because it's meaningless, because we're calling everyone a sage, as you said, just because they reach a certain age, and that's just, for them, they, a lot of them feel like it's just stupid. You know, like, what, really? Like, you don't know anything about me. You know what I mean? But now I'm a sage, because I'm 82. That's why I bring it up. 
you know, we had a competition to choose that name. Yes, right. I know. Uh, I selected the millionaires, but they <laughs> the millionaires. <laughs> All right. So, so what what Rumbaum what Rumbaum is saying at, at the last paragraph on that page is that he says that these are they're not just two types of people, but two ways of understanding morality itself. Right? The, these two, the Chassid and the Chacham. Go to page three. So we're going to go to the middle of that first paragraph on page three. Saints are supremely virtuous people considered as individual, yet you cannot build a society out of saints alone. Indeed, saints are not really interested in society. They've chosen a different, lonely, self-segregating path. I know no one who makes this point as clearly as Rambam, as Maimonides. It is this deep insight that led Maimonides to his seemingly contradictory evaluations of the Nazarite. The Nazarite has chosen, at least for a period, to adopt a life of extreme self-denial. He or she is a saint, a chassid. He or she has adopted the path of personal perfection. This is noble, commendable, exemplary, but it is not the way of the sage. And you need sages if you seek to perfect society. The sage is not an extremist because he or she realizes that there are other people at stake. There are the members of one's own family, the others within one's community. There are colleagues at work. There is a country to defend and a nation to build. The sage knows he or she cannot leave all these commitments behind to pursue a life of solitary virtue. For we are called on by God to live in the world, not escape from it. In society, not seclusion. To strive to create a balance among the conflicting pressures on us, not to focus on some while neglecting the others. And for Rambam, this is why the Nazarite has to bring an offering at the end of the whole business is because on some level, it's a sin. On some level, there's something that has to be rectified by separating oneself out to be special, to be different, to be set aside for God, which is interesting, right, that being set aside for God causes a rupture with God, right? What, what's up with that? Well, it's because I think... To Bert's point, it's a very Jewish understanding that the way we are a holy people, a people set aside, an Am Kadosh, right? Kadosh, holy means set aside in Hebrew. How are we an Am Kadosh? By how we behave with each other. By how we behave with our neighbors who are not Jewish. That is how we live a life as an Am Kadosh. That is how we live into holiness is by repairing the world, not retiring from it. And I think ultimately for me, I love that the Nazarite was this kind of thing that people like got to do, but that the tradition ultimately said, not a good idea and got rid of it, right? To say that that's not how we live closer to the divine. We live closest to the divine when we internalize those things that we call godly, those traits that we call godly traits, you know, forgiveness, patience, empathy, justice, 
you know, love, all those things, when we embody that through what we do and how we engage with each other and the world, that is the way we truly become a holy people living into um, the image and the desire uh, of the divine for a world more whole and closer to peace. Shabbat Shalom. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday morning Torah study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.